Welcome to Displaced. I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I'm Grant Gordon. Displaced is the podcast to listen to if you want to know about the global refugee crisis. We talk about the causes of war and what the solutions are to the unprecedented levels of displacement globally. Today on the show, we are talking with Reshma Sojani. Uh, Reshma is the CEO and founder of Girls Who Code. Before founding this, she was the first Indian American woman to run for US Congress in a race that she actually lost. And one of the things that she talks about really explicitly is the need for courage and bravery to actually step up into failure. So Reshma's not the most obvious guest for this show because she's not somebody who's working on refugee issues. But what I'm really interested in talking to about is how you work as a social entrepreneur. How do you generate an amazing idea and go to scale within two to three years? And she's also somebody who I think can tell us a lot about learning from failure. She's talked very personally about the impact of uh, running for office and getting the knockbacks and how that inspired her to achieve her goals through different means, in particular setting up an amazing global nonprofit. So Grant and I work at the Airbell Centre at the International Rescue Committee. And the Airbell Centre is about designing, testing and scaling new products, services and solutions. We're an innovation lab. The questions that we think a lot about at Airbell uh, and the Innovation Centre and, and the IRC and the humanitarian sector more broadly is how do we fail effectively? How do we fail quickly? And how do we embrace a culture like this? And I think that there's a lot of talk about this. Um, and I personally grapple with how you actually tactically do this. When When is enough? When do you stop? When do you quit at something, right? Like how long do you keep going with things, particularly that you love? Yeah, I mean, we ha- we've tried to embrace what has now become a cliche, this idea of failing fast. But as Grant, and- Grant knows, whenever you get interested in an idea, it's hard to, to lose and kill your babies. You end up flogging the dead horse to mix my metaphors badly. <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> failure, failure is something that gets talked about a lot uh, as an aspiration, but not in terms of how you actually operationalize it. So here's a conversation with Reshma Sarjani. So Reshma Sarjani, welcome to Displaced. Um, we'd like to just kick off by just understanding your own personal background. You're very connected to the refugee story personally from your parents who fled Uganda. Tell us a bit more about that. Sure. Um, so my parents came to this country in 1973. Two generations of my family were born in Africa. So they were brought over by the British to build the railroads from Kampala to Mombasa. And my father was literally watching television one day when the dictator Idi Amin came on and said that all the Uganda nations had 90 days to leave the country or they'd be shot on spot. We had a huge family there and everybody was scrambling for refugee status. And my parents were only two out of all of our family members um, who got refugee status to come to the United States. And they were two of a thousand refugees who got status to come here. And the rest of my family ended up in um, camps all across Europe. And so they came here like not knowing the language, right, not having any family. They were quite young, you know, late 20s. My mother was like almost eight months pregnant with my sister. And they built a life for themselves. And so, like, their experience, I think, was really transformative for me. And it also, like, has inspired everything that I that I do. I, I mean, this might sound cheesy, but, like, I, their experience created, like, a deep love of this country for me. Like, I love, I love America, and I'm grateful for what they did for my family. And so my mission in life is to give back. 
my uh, my grandparents were refugees um, to the U.S. A few of them, and uh, they were the, the amount of gratitude that they had, yeah. um, and the amount of kind of like nationalism that I think refugees have, which is underestimated from the outside. Yes, um, goes underappreciated. Yeah. And I think immigrants generally who come to this country, right, whether they're seeking asylum or, you know, they're, they're coming here for, uh, you know, for a better chance. Mm. And so but, growing up in the f- family of refugees, yeah. what, um, what were the expectations of what you would go on to do? Because I think that there's a narrative, and at least one of the things that I experienced is <clears throat> there's a sense of duty and obligation and um, success that I think yeah. is quite high. Thousand percent. And keep your head down. You know, stuff like if I was, I remember, you know, I was bullied at school and I came home pretty in bad shape. And I remember like my parents didn't call the principal or the police, right? Because mm-hmm. there was still this sense of like you had to play by the rules. And and I think my parents wanted me to have the, you know, epitome of the American dream, like be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer. I'm still recovering from the failure in my parents' oh, yeah. eyes. Yeah. As my brother and sister. And not becoming a doctor. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever choose it. When I finished my PhD, my grandmother said, if only you were a real doctor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this is, this is actually really interesting. My parents uh, never called the police um, because they were afraid of the police. I think we had grown up in kind of a family in which uh, the state was not necessarily there to protect you rather than you need to play by the rules. Yeah. I also, yeah, absolutely. And even I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, even my father, my father changed his name from Mukun to Mike. Still today signs his birthday cards, love Mike. Mm. Um, You know, really took on that identity. He would go to Toastmasters Club you know, every Sorry, week. Toastmasters? Toastmasters was a, is a public speaking club. It's been around since the 1900s. But he would go there to get rid of his accent. Mm. And, you know, even we didn't, I barely can speak any Gujarati. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Or any, you know, every, we really, 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 I really think that my parents tried to integrate us and to kind of strip away some of our culture. I think, again, from a place of love for country and from a place of protection. And can I just, you said something at the, at the beginning which interested me, which you said that it, this whole experience of your family gave you a deep love of this country. And the reason I think it's interesting is I too also have um, parents when my dad fled um, Burma Mm. uh, because his family had gone over from Madras to help with the rail construction. um, And he fled during the Second World War and then came over to the UK. um, And... In the UK, I don't feel that immigrants really have much of a sense of love for their country in the same way that I think is obvious from you and, and many people I meet here. And why is it that that's been imbued in you? I I mean, I, maybe because my parents are well, always so grateful and so so had so much love and patriotism and, you know, worked again so hard to kind of give back. I think that they instilled that in us as values. I think that I saw their struggle you know, as immigrant parents, again, not knowing the language. And, you know, no matter what happened to them, if my mother was harassed because she was wearing a sari and a bindi at Kmart, she was never angry about it. And so I, I really feel like that they put that that in us, this gratefulness, this gratitude, right, um, for this country. And I think it's a really big misconception, especially in the narrative right now that we're having around immigration, that there are a bunch of criminals who are trying to, like, take up our resources. And it's, it's, that's not the immigrant story, right? The immigrant story is people who come here who are given a chance and who literally spend their entire lives trying to create value. You know what I mean? Trying to do good, uh, trying to give back. That's the immigrants that I know. 
So we're going to fast forward a little bit. In 2010, you're the first Indian American uh, woman to run for Congress. Yeah. Um, tell us a little bit about the race, how it played out, and um, what happened. Oh, how I miserably lost. Um, <laughs> that, was, yeah. that was the question yeah, I was yeah, trying yeah, yeah, to yeah. ask. Yeah, I was like an insurgent <laughs> before it was cool. I, you know, I, um, I started working on my first campaign kind of, uh, you know, in, when I was in college, I was organizing campaigns. I, I worked on my first political campaign in my early 20s. I loved politics. Like, I loved debate. I loved the whole, and I obviously wanted to give back. And so, you know, I was in this miserable job working in finance, trying to pay off my student loan debt. Hated it, like the opposite of public service. And, you know, I was honestly experiencing where I feel like a lot of young people are experiencing today was just like, how did I get here? Mm -hmm. You know, and... I I saw that uh, Carolyn Maloney was thinking about running for Senate and that she might not and that it would be an open seat. And I just was like, you know what, I'm going to run. And for so long, I had been going to all these Democratic Party events and they had talked about young people running and we needed more women. I was like, oh, you're talking about me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think that it was something you shouldn't do, right, which was, you know, run against an incumbent in a Democratic primary. And and so I just did it. And it was pretty amazing. I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I, right? I couldn't call my dad and say, hey, dad, how do I run a congressional campaign? None of my friends knew what we were doing. We knew how to, like, build a website. We, like, built one. We raised, like, $50,000 from, like, Indian aunties. But I thought that I could knock on every door, shake every hand, run a campaign that that was about ideas and that I would win. And that didn't happen. <laughs> and would you say that politics is still a calling for you? Is it still a vocation? I mean, listen, every Sunday in my home is, you know, a place of the resistance where we have people, uh, whether it's candidates or organizations or communities that are coming together and talking about our democracy, what's happening in our country. And so politics is like in my blood. Um, that's different than like, am I going to run again one day? And I think what I struggle with is, you know, when I lost my public advocacy race, I ran again and lost again. I basically said, you know what, screw it. I am going to... I ran to be public advocate because I wanted to get computer science to every child. And I said, all right, if you're not going to elect me, I'm going to do it anyway. And I've done that. And when I look at, um, you know, I was just in a classroom in Queens yesterday morning, and these little middle school girls were just, like, making these robot stands. And it was just, it was just like, and I was, I've been in classrooms like this all across the country. And where I'm seeing us, you know, give economic opportunity to kids. And so I feel like I've made more of a difference as a nonprofit leader, you know what I mean, than I would have, you know, over the past six years possibly being elected. And so when I, I – the only reason why I would ever run again is I really thought for sure I would make more of a difference as an elected official than someone who's outside of the system. So uh, you ran for you ran for the seat. You lost. Yeah. Um, and it was at a moment where you were saying that the Democratic Party and you know political parties were saying we need young new people yeah. to run. And I think particularly on the Democratic bench right now, yeah. there's it's a lot shallower yeah. than on the Republican side. What was your takeaway from losing a race in which you thought that you were you know getting a strong signal that this is exactly what you should be stepping up into? And and how would you communicate those lessons to people who are thinking about getting involved in politics at a young age? I still don't. I think that uh, politics is not a performance sport. We say that we want ideas, but really we want entrenched incumbents. And I and I think that like so. I think there needs to be a lot of disruption. I think part of the problem is that people don't vote. We make it so hard for people to vote. I don't know if you've ever tried to vote absentee in New York. It's impossible, right? Last year I forgot to put my stamp on the envelope, and my vote didn't count. 
So like this, you know, like, so it's just, so it's insane, right? And so I think that like, so the institution doesn't support new leaders or new thought leadership, and that needs to change. Um, And so I'm more hopeful in 2018. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be the landslide that we're hoping to see, because again, I think there's systems created to ensure that the average age in Congress is 69, so you come out, you become a nonprofit leader, as you were mentioning, and uh, you launch uh, Girls Who Code. What is Girls Who Code? Yeah. So Girls Who Code is a national nonprofit, a movement to close the gender gap in computer science and tech. You know, basically, we have 500,000 open jobs in computing and technology. Last year, we graduated 50,000 computer science graduates, of which 10,000 were women. So we have this massive um, tech talent deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's a massive gender problem because there just simply aren't enough women going into this field at a time where forty five percent of America's breadwinners are women, and so um, you know we we realize that to really change this problem you have to intervene um, as young as you possibly can, and so we build free summer camps that we embed in technology companies across the country. We run about forty five hundred girls who code clubs in all fifty states. Um, both of these programs are free. Uh, and then we run these, like, two-week paid immersive programs. So basically, over the past six years, we've had, like, 90,000 girls had a computer program. We're on our way to several hundred thousand next year, and we're, and we're launching international. We just want to cr- teach so many girls to code that, like, if you ever want to hire a coder, it's a girl. And where did that drive to sort of solve that gender inequality come from? Because there's so many different yeah. uh, challenges that you could have addressed. So listen, I, t- you know, daughter of refugees, I've had a job since I was 12 years old. You know, I was uh, helped my parents pay for their mortgage. And again, when, when my father said doctor, lawyer, engineer is because those are good paying jobs and I could actually change the, the, the status of my family and my future by, pay, by getting one of those great paying jobs. Mm-hmm. I think it's the same thing with coding. Like I think that coding is a great equalizer. And I think if we taught kids to code, we could actually close the poverty gap. So that's my – I go to work every day thinking about how I can teach more poor kids, more girls, how to computer program so that they can get good paying jobs. And is that the primary thing you're trying to create here, a pathway into um, computer science and and those kind of jobs? Or is it also the side benefit that only you've talked about, which is persistence and social and emotional learning? Both. So I think when we started, it was about the economic pipeline, right, and economic opportunity. And I think as I developed the organization, I was like, oh, my God, like, when you teach girls to code, they become change makers. Because when I saw what girls were doing when they got the opportunity to code and the problems that they wanted to solve, it was, I'm undocumented and I want to build a game on immigration. Uh, my brother's dyslexic and I want to build an app to help him read. I'm being bullied in school or I know if someone was being bullied in school and I want to build a tool to help them. I saw that, you know, People are not getting funding because Congress isn't getting it together on the Zika bill. So I want to build an algorithm to help tell you where Zika is going. So girls were immediately, when they got this skill set, were thinking about their community, their world, and how to make it better. And that was kind of the aha movement. Hey, this isn't just about a job. This is also about creating a generation of change makers. It's one of the things that I think gets underestimated in thinking about diversity. Um, And so when you have, you know, a male-dominated sector like you do in coding and tech, you don't get the amazing ideas that other yeah. people bring to the table, um, yeah. like women or like people of color. Yeah. And it's uh, there's not only problems with like systematic discrimination against those groups, yeah. but there's just a total loss of opportunity for yeah. the 
brilliant yeah. things that they were bringing to the and, table. And, and it's particularly frightening as you think about artificial intelligence right now. You know, like when, uh, you know, when they put the data sets together for voice recognition, it was all men. So when my, you know, when I'm telling Alexa, hey, put on Madonna, you know, she's putting on Motley Crue because she can't understand me. <laughs> and so, so much of this is in the bias that we have in terms of, again, as we become more technologically advanced, it's, it's, it's pretty scary. Well, so zooming out then, I think one of the things that you see in the U.S. is actually a decrease in the number of computer scientists who are women. So in 1995, yeah. it was 37%, um, and uh, today it's only 24%, and there's kind of expected decreases to 22% of women in computing over 10 years. And one of the things that I think is challenging to understand is there's simultaneously an increase in gender awareness, parity, uh, more so um, between gender, but a decrease in the number of women actually stepping into com- computing roles as that happens. So how do you think about those divergent trends? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, I think the thing is, is that just because we're becoming a society that is more feminist doesn't mean that we're still not disrupting industries that are traditionally male. And so what's, you know, what's kind of wild about computer science is like the world's first p- programmer was a woman. If you walked into Atari's gaming camp in the 80s, it would have been half boys and half girls. But then in the 80s, we started basic, the trend started shifting because culture started shifting. And all of a sudden in culture, when you described a computer scientist, he was a white guy wearing a hoodie, sitting in a basement somewhere. And you saw him on Revenge of the Nerds, Weird Science, right? All throughout kind of culture. So when girls in the 80s and 90s and 2000s started thinking about what they wanted to do, whether this was a field for them, they didn't see themselves in them and they moved away from it. I always say like the opposite thing happened in law. You know, in the 70s, only 10% of doctors and lawyers were women. Today, 55%. Why? Allie McBeal, Grey's Anatomy, L.A. Law. Essentially, culture shifted the image of a lawyer to being one that looked like me. And little girls opted into that. And the opposite thing has happened in technology. And so so where we, what we think about Girls Who Code every day is how do you change culture, right? How do I say to Forever 21, you can't make a T-shirt that says I'm allergic to algebra, how do I tell Barbie, right? You can't have a Barbie doll that says, I hate math. Let's go shopping instead, right? Wait, are there T-shirts and Barbie dolls like this? Of course. Uh, and, but even, so if you, even if you um, – HBO show Silicon Valley, right? I mean, even if you watch a commercial that's you know depicting technology, it's all men. And these things matter, and that's what we have to change. So how do you change culture? Well, um, you know, one, we every day think about how do you I, – I stalk Shonda Rhimes like it's my job. <laughs> so she did the next scandal show on a cool coder, and I do the same thing for Disney. You know, when those things happen, like Forever 21, we have an organization to basically kind of put pressure and shame mm-hmm. on them. Uh, we Girls Who Code wrote 13 books. You know, we wrote the first ever book on girls and coding, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. But we have fiction books and How to Code a Sandcastle and Babies Who Code. Um, you know, we did a we did a video called Why Girls Can't Code that won the Can Lions. We used comedy to kind of shift that. We're putting on a massive global girls digital summit um, on, on the day of the girl in October. So we're we're constantly organizing, mobilizing, and shifting and changing culture. And I do think in the past six years, Girls Who Code has led the movement to make coding cool. You know, we've created a conversation that just simply didn't exist. And at least we're talking about girls and technology. We're talking about what programs we need. And it's happening. So I'd like to get into the question about scaling yeah. um, later on, because that's something we grapple with a lot in the humanitarian world. How do you get good ideas to grow and really take off? But 
interested in your international plans because yeah. obviously this is something that's taken off in the US. To what extent do you think it could have applicability much more broadly? Um, and is it something that, for instance, um, is there is it a low barrier to entry, both yeah. in putting up the programs, but also people being able to participate in your kind of camps? I mean, it's kind of, look, I was very resistant to going international because I really wanted to solve the problem here. And I think we've made a massive dent and I think that's why we're ready to go. But I think it's the same problem everywhere. I was just in Italy and it's the exact same thing. Same numbers of women in computer science, same women numbers of women in computer science jobs, same cultural problems of how they're describing computer science and technology and making. It's the same problem everywhere. And so I think that that's, that's happening at a time, honestly, where there's this global sisterhood that's being built amongst women who are saying, enough. You know what I mean? I have a daughter. I want her. I know that she needs to know how to code to simply survive in the 21st century. Like, I'm going to create institutions and opportunities for her to learn. One of the things that I was reading um, in preparation for this interview is kind of looking at the global statistics on this. Yeah. And one of the things I found really interesting is that um, there's an inverse correlation between women who code and um, income levels of countries. So basically you see more parity um, between male and females in poor countries um, in participation in, in computing and engineering than you do in OECD countries. So richer countries just have lower rates of female participation in when you think about expanding internationally, are you thinking about going into countries based on some of the um, lack of parity in in women in computing, or do you think about it more broadly? Ah, I love what you just said. It's so fascinating. I want to like my dream is to organize like a study mission of like because I don't think people fully grasp what you just said, right? Which is actually in India, China, Japan, and less of you know what I mean. There's mm -hmm. less of a gender gap than there is in France, UK, and, and, and so they're doing something different and right, and they have other problems on the other end, right? Um, and what is driving that better story in those countries? Is it the, the value that is generally placed on science and technology and the, the value that's placed on secure jobs? And culture. Listen, you go to Bangalore. My mother is an engineer. Most of my mother's friends were engineers. You go to Bangalore, you watch Bollywood cereal. What, what is the woman in the cereal doing? She's technical, you know? So it's cool. It's in, in, in Indian culture, Chinese culture, Japanese culture, and other places. So Nigeria. Bollywood is much better than Hollywood in terms of tech <laughs> yeah, culture. I mean, yeah. I think that we, I don't, I don't, I really, culture plays a big role in this stuff, right? Um, and so it, and if, if all the women around you, you know, uh, in your village, when they're going to college or they're aspiring to go to college or are going to be engineers, that's what you aspire to do too. Now, if all the women around you, right, are going into something else that's non-technical or, you know, whether it's into history or literary, then you're not going to, you know, you're going to want to do that too. And so culture plays a huge role. One of the things that, uh, one of the studies that we'll post in the show notes discusses is that uh, in poor countries, acquiring these skills uh, generate kind of a more certain financial future. Um, and so there's just more of an incentive to do it, particularly yeah. if you're poor in those countries. There's oftentimes no social services and um, you're going to fall through. So there's a you know comparative incentive to do this. Um, and it wraps around to one of the things we we're talking about in terms of culture that I think about, which is are the organizations who um, hire coders um, in the tech sector, are they accessible, right? Is the door open in any way? And I think one of the things that you see in the U.S., particularly around the current conversation, is that these are just really male-dominated cultures. So there's changing kind of the uh, pop culture narrative or kind of the cultural fabric, but then there's also within organization cultural yeah. shifts um, that I think play a role. And so I'd love to hear how you think about changing 
organizational culture specifically yeah. on this and, and how you've crafted an organizational yeah. culture at Girls Who Code who's more supportive? So, I mean, if you think about Silicon Valley's culture, you know, I think Silicon Valley thinks that it's very egalitarian, very meritocratic. But if you look at, for example, even the recruiting practices, it's very elite, right? They recruit at the top 10 schools. We have a lot of girls, for example, that got into Stanford or MIT but went to CUNY because they can't afford to go to those other two places. And this is a case for, I think, a lot of girls, a lot of people of color, a lot of, a lot of people who are not as well off. And so if those companies are not going to those universities or schools to look for them, it's easy for them to say, ah, I can't hire any people of color. I can't hire any women. I can't find them. And I think I, we really are pushing this year of saying to them, where are you looking and I think so. I think that that's really important. And I think at Girls Who Code, again, you know, from the beginning, when I started Girls Who Code, I said, I want, for some nonprofits, they either focus on girls that are under the poverty line or they're agnostics. So like First Robotics, completely agnostic, right, to, to gender, to race, to socioeconomic status. I wanted to do both. So from the beginning, I mandated that every single classroom has to have half girls that are under the poverty line and half girls that are black and Latina. So every day, even still six years later, everybody hands me the class sheets, and I look at them, and I move people around. And so when you walk into our classrooms, they look like American classrooms should look like. They're not segregated. You have black girls with Latino girls. You have girls that are, you know, Muslim that are, you know, going through Ramzan, at, at, you know, during the summer months. They have girls that are trans that are, you know, that are gay. And so, and many of them have never interacted with somebody who doesn't look like them. And so they're forming these powerful relationships. They're learning code, but they're also forming these powerful sisterhood. And there's a lot of healing that's happening. And so that is the culture that I wanted to have in my organization and in my movement. And just we're always on the lookout for trying to scale and grow and steal ideas. Um, just love to know, one, what sort of evaluation are you doing on the program to understand whether it works? And two, um, how much does it cost and how can you get the cost down to make it even more scalable? Yeah, I mean, so so basically when I started, started Girls of Code, I just said we're going to grow at 300% every year. Just made the number up. And I pushed the organization to do just incredibly crazy things and grow at rates that everybody was probably incredibly uncomfortable with. Yeah, 300% is nutty just to yeah, underscore. It's a lot. It's a lot. I mean, we went from one summer program to 80 summer programs in three years, right? We went from 20 clubs to 4,500 clubs. We're talking about 40,000 kids going through my after-school programs in, in two years alone. How did you maintain quality? Because that's the typical challenge when you right. grow too quickly. Well, I mean, I think the thing is, is we got the model down right in terms of what our what our mission was, what our values were, and then how we were going to measure them. So I hired outside valuators, then internal evaluators from the beginning, and I set up my benchmark. So my benchmark was I wanted to get girls to major or minor in computer science. So I measure the efficacy of my programs based upon that baseline. So when you started the program, what was your interest in computer science? When you finished the program, what was your interest in computer science? And then now three years later, have you actually done that? So this is the fun part for me um, because over the next, I have 10,000 new computer science graduates that are starting in the fall. And so I will actually see whether the benchmark that I set up is going to actually work. Um, and we'll see. But I, I, listen to me, it's, you know, go big or go home. Like, I'm not, I, I, there's no, I, I don't want to create a legacy nonprofit. If I'm running Girls of Code, you know what I mean? Essentially, in doing this in the next like 50 years, please have a conversation with me. I want to solve this problem and go on to the next one. And so, if you go, if you, I think, start from that mentality, 
I don't know, maybe you're more, you take more risks in terms of scale. So I'm just trying to picture the room where you say, right, we're going to grow at 300%. Yeah. What does your team, how do they react to that? They think I'm crazy. And and how do you convince them that you're not crazy and that you can do, you can grow but maintain quality and that you, the funds are going to come in, the business model will work? H- how do you convince people of that? Because I think the first couple of years, I think people are like, oh, she's going to overstep and we're going to we're going to run out of money. We're going to make a mistake. Something's going to happen in a classroom. We're going to this, that, 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 that. We're not going to get enough people. And then it doesn't happen. And then next year it doesn't happen. And then by the time you're in the organization right now, you're like, okay, like – Maybe she's not crazy. But the other thing I did was while I scaled, I actually didn't try to do 100 things. We do two things at Girls Who Code, and we do two things well. Like I never really – I think sometimes you – people are like, oh, why don't you start Women Who Code? Why don't you do – you know, why don't you do this? Why don't you do that? And I think we stayed really focused on our product, and we really figured out how to scale the product. And we measure, we, we measure all the time. Like Bill Gates says this, right? It's like you can't change what you can't measure. And so for me, I always wanted to make sure other people were telling me, am I actually meeting the benchmarks that I'm meeting? And if not, we need to pivot. And, and that's the other thing. I mean, some people's jobs change three times a year. And so if you're coming to work at Girls Who Code, you know, the, the organization is kind of like half movement, half political campaign. It's not a traditional nonprofit. And I think the people that we attract are looking for a space like that, which allows us, I think, to do some of the things that we, we've been able to do. We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to be back in a few seconds with Reshma. Hiring is a challenge, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter.com slash displaced. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards. But they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invite them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. With results like that, It's no wonder ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash displaced. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash D-I-S-P-L-A-C-E-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash displaced. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. We're back with Rishma Sojani. So I want to ask you a little bit more about um, the product and what you've learned as it relates to educational technology. Um, In the humanitarian field over the past five years, about 50% of education and emergency programming has involved some use of ed tech. It's Mm. become a crucial component of um, education in crisis zones and in longer-term displacement settings. And I think that uh, there's a lot of optimism around the use of ed tech and a lot of kind of emerging lessons about how to actually make it effective. And I would love to hear what some of your initial takeaways on what is what works in ed tech from what you've done and what are some of the potential pitfalls. Yeah, I mean, look, I think for us the biggest – 
We have we, – we basically have these summer immersion programs that we embed in technology companies. So we'll pick 20 girls and for seven weeks they'll learn how to code at Facebook. And in those environments, it's very controlled, right? We know the technology is going to work. We bring in the teacher. We recruit the girls. You know, and so we, we can actually, um, you know, create an environment that we – that can be consistent around all 80 classrooms that are happening across the country. I think in our after-school program, it's a little bit more complicated, right? Because they say something as, as much as 40% of schools across the country don't have Wi-Fi in the schools. So if you're in a coding class and the internet's going in and out and you're on scratch, it's not conducive to learning, right? Or if you don't have Wi-Fi at home and you have an assignment that you're taking home with, you can't practice, right? So I think those are some of the challenges that we have uh, in terms of our product, you know, um, domestically, which I think are going to be exacerbated when we go international, which is one of the reasons why I wrote a book. I know books are incredibly analog, an analog way to actually increasing technical knowledge, but that's why I did it. And I, and we are actually this, this, um, fall launching third to fifth grade clubs that are based on the book. So kids will get together, open up the girls' code book, and learn what a variable is, a conditional is, you know, and learn kind of what the fundamentals are of coding, even if they don't have a computer at home or at school. So that's, I mean, that's one of the interesting things about um, when I think about many international programs and the challenge of doing it, it's actually all the logistics and cost of hiring a teacher or finding a space. So the more you can make this almost self-service, yeah. um, the better. And I know there's been lots of failed experiments with things like One Laptop a Child, where you know, we assume that if you just give somebody some technology, they'll be able to somehow use it, which hasn't hasn't been proved successful. So is your vision to try and make this quite lean so that just with the lightest facilitation, people can learn themselves? Absolutely. And I think it's also and also to find places and spaces like so libraries have been huge for us. You know, we have clubs, for example, in kind of rural, you know, rural parts of the community where there's no Wi-Fi at home or at school, but the kids are meeting in the club two days a week. And that's kind of the space where, where they're getting access and opportunity. And I think we have to figure out what is the library in some of these towns and communities internationally. I'm super excited to learn. You know, I think that we've seen like, you know, a piece of this here domestically, but there's going to be a lot more challenges uh, across the world. I want to go back one second to the, the book you were mentioning. Yeah. So this is a textbook that yeah. explains how to code. When you looked at the textbooks available and decided that you wanted to write a book, what was missing from what's kind of on stock? Well, there was no – okay. For, well, first of all, we wrote essentially a nonfiction book. And so the last kind of nonfiction book that was done up, up on girls and, and like technology was like um, by Winnie from remember, – remember her from no. um, The Wonder Years? Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. She had wrote a book about math that was like a big success, right? And that was the last time. So that was crazy to me, right? Like, why are there books about princesses but not books that are teaching girls to code? And so so we created the first one. And, you know, it was, it's been a huge success. New York Times bestseller. We've, we, it's, done, it's, done, uh, it's done great. And then we've proceeded to do more fiction books, nonfiction books. We have a, ba- a, a board book called Babies Who Code. Like, and, and what Babies are good coders. Yeah, babies are good coders. And what we've found is it's closed the accessibility gap. So, I mean, you talked at the outset of this conversation about how you got into politics in part to make a change that you've now been able to make just through being a nonprofit leader. And I've got two questions about that. One, what was it about doing it in a nonprofit space that made this effective? You know, did you think about doing it in a for-profit option? And the other question is, right now, are you not thinking, frankly, there are so many difficult, challenging issues in the world that can only be solved through politics? through actually engaging in 
what you were formerly doing that you actually need to get out of the, the sort of non-profit space mm. and stand up? And, and how are you responding to that calling, I'm sure, that lies yeah. deeply than you? I mean, look, I think on the first question, I didn't know better. I just thought I was supposed to start a non-profit. And so when people come to me all the time with their ideas, I ask them, does it have to be a nonprofit? Because I, every year, have to raise $20 million, and I strap my baby to my back, and I start over again. And it sucks. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm waiting for someone, some billionaire, to just write me a really large check. But I spend a lot of time having to raise money when I should be spending on ideation. And so it's not a, it's not easy. Um, and so I, I don't know if that's I, – I don't often – I don't encourage people to start nonprofits. I think it's hard. Um, and so I think in some ways finding other solutions because there's nothing, there's nothing charitable about teaching girls to code, right? Mm-hmm. It's not – that's not a charitable mission. Um, but that's the form that I created when I thought about this six years ago, maybe because I didn't know any better. You know, on your second point, I am – I am, I think, like a lot of people, uh, feeling a lot of pain when I see what's happening in our country right now. I, uh, you know, the, the recently the fact that we're separating um, parents from their children at the border. I don't know if you listened to the audio that ProPublica did about um, the children that are screaming for their parents, and and then we're laughing about it, and it, it's so incredibly, incredibly uh, inhumane and. You know, I'm working with uh, organizations right now to bring moms to Tornillo next week. And it's just, um, yes, it's 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 really a hard moment, I think, for those of us who believe in change to, to figure out how you how you can make a difference on uh, how you can actually. But the way that I feel, though, right now, and I guess this is the I mean, full disclosure in my brain. Um, I think if the election were to happen tomorrow, I think Donald Trump would get reelected, unfortunately. And I think that people are so immune to what's happening that we're not as angry as we need to be. And I think that people need to feel inspired and uplifted. And what I really think about every day is how do we do that? There was something about seeing those Parkland kids that was just so moving and I think represented who we are as a country. And so how do we uplift people again? How do we inspire them? How do we have people, um, you know, uh, act with humility and compassion every single day? You know, I think this is many months now, but the White House invited you to discuss computer science. And you rejected the invitation Mm -hmm. and wrote a really strongly worded New York Times op-ed because this was in response to the White House issuing the executive order which barred Syrian refugees and um, citizens of seven other predominantly Muslim countries. And so that was kind of one step. And I I wonder how you um, essentially kind of cultivate a a culture of either resistance or inspiration um, at Girls Who Code and think about more public stands like this. Yeah, I mean, listen, I I have a lot of girls that are undocumented, um, that are trans, that are, you know, that are that are black, that are Latino, that are white and poor. I mean, we have a lot of kids who are whose families and themselves are being hurt by this administration's policies. And, you know, I had a middle school teacher tell me uh, a couple months ago that um, uh, in her classroom, the boys were grabbing girls genitals and saying, I trumped you. You know, we have. Yeah. Like. That's and, and we forget, you know, and I see this all the time, as much as I see my girls with like their girl empowerment T-shirts on, they will raise their hand and say, Mr. Johnny, I was playing basketball the other day and boys told me that basketball is not for girls. 
as 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 much as we're focusing on our girls, we are forgetting that our boys have a role model that is everything we don't want him to be. And they're listening. And so we need to pay attention to that. And I think we need to fight that uh, as parents and as teachers and as educators. And so I, I, I don't feel like, and I said this in my op-ed, that there is a place at the table, that there's compromise, that there's change. I think what's again happened this week and the lack of inhumanity that we're seeing uh, is to me an example that this administration is just um, hateful. Um. One of the things that we think about a lot is, and that you talk about a lot, is uh, the need for bravery. Um, And you have a TED Talk on this. It's amazing that everybody should go watch. And uh, I would love to hear why bravery and how you cultivate bravery. So, you know, I have been working on these issues, I feel like, since I was like 13 years old. And, you know, I feel like I woke up in my late late 30s, early 40s and was like, ah, why hasn't anything changed? And, you know, I'm around the company of girls a lot. And I, I realize, like, you know, from the time that we're young, girls are taught to, like, you know, smile pretty and play it safe and get all A's. And boys are taught to, like, crawl to the monkey bars and just jump. I have this. I have a three-year-old son. And so, uh, you know, a couple, uh, like six months ago, he, my, my husband's going to get mad that I'm telling a story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple months ago, he said, I'm scared of the dark. And he wanted a light. So every night I'd put him to bed put him in his crib. I turn on the light. I go to bed. My husband would come upstairs, turn off the light. Baby would cry. And we kept doing this dance. And I was like, what is wrong with you, Nahal? Right? And he was just like, I, you know, I don't want him to be afraid of the dark. I want him to be tough. And I said, Nahal, if Sean was a girl, would you let him sleep with the nightlight? And he thought for a minute. He's like, yeah, I would. And I was like, so we do this, right, to our, our sons and our daughters where we we are always coddling and protecting our girls and we're trying to man up our boys. And I think the way that that translates by the time that they're teens or adults is we become people pleasers. We don't have our voice anymore. We gravitate towards things we're, we're good at and we don't get excited by challenge in the same way that we should. Whereas men are comfortable, boys become comfortable with rejection and failure and com- rejection and failure. And this, to me, translates into not just a leadership gap, but a happiness gap. I mean, you speak to a lot of girls right now in their like late to mid-20s. Most of them are reading their horoscopes and going to therapists for answers, right? They thought that they did everything right, went to the right schools, got the right job. Why aren't I happy? And it's because that they're for, that they're so, we're so marred by perfectionism that we don't know what we want anymore. And so to me, I want to build a movement to really teach everyday bravery. Every day. So, you know, you, you don't even need the big moments like me, too, because every day we've been taught to speak up for ourselves and to tell you what we want. And one aspect of bravery is, as you say, being persistent and not taking knockbacks and carrying on regardless. One of the things we struggle with in our team where we're constantly trying to design new products and services is how to think about failure. And when should you actually not keep persisting and flogging the dead horse, but actually um, kill the zombie idea? Yeah. Um, and, you, and you've spoken a lot about failure and how it's inspired you to, to great things. And can you just say a little bit more about how you get that balance right between sticking with something versus actually taking the hint? Yeah, I mean, I think it's right. When do, when do you know how to quit? Because mm-hmm. I think some of it, I think that that's really important to know when to quit. And I think the thing is, is part of it is like figuring out, like, am I just doing this because I, I want to win? Or am I doing this because I really believe that I, I want to quit because I'm just exhausted? And I think those are two very different things. Like sometimes we know that it's time to pack it in and it's done. And sometimes we want to quit because it's just easier to quit than to try. And I think knowing the difference between the two. 
So I, I feel incredibly biased um, in all of the projects I have and in all of the things I do. I think um, uh, my best and worst qualities are that I'm um, incredibly optimistic and have a bad long-term memory. <laughs> so I'm willing to do incredibly hard things over and over again. And also for projects I start, I'm attached to them. Um, and I think that there's a number of kind of just cognitive biases that, you know, are, are, are increasingly researched and discussed that distort people's decision making. And I would love to know what are the actual practices or rituals or tactical things you do to both uh, cultivate failure, but to, then to also know when to stop. Yeah. So, well, I have a book coming out, Brave Not Perfect, in February, so you'll get to read all about them. But I'll, I'll, I'll share with you a couple of tactics. So one of the things that's really important for me is immunizing yourself um, from the fear of failure. Most people don't want to try something and fail because they think that they'll die if it doesn't work out. And so one of my practices is I surround myself with rejection letters. So you come to my house, you take, you know, on my refrigerator <laughs> is like a rejection letter from like my community board. Like I'm like, not only did I lose two elections, but I can't even get on my community board. Like it's that bad. But every day as I'm getting out my orange juice, I'm like, oh, okay. And so for me, that immunizes me from taking risks because I can wake up and look at a rejection letter every day and it doesn't kill me. I think that that's really important. You know, I think the second thing that I do is, you know, I realized at a certain point in my life that I wasn't trying new things anymore. You know mm -hmm. that feeling mm -hmm. when you're doing something for the first time that you're a little scared to do and you kind of have it in your head that you're not going to be good at it and you kind of do it, that feeling, how good it feels, or even the moment when you're trying. So, like, you know, I recently learned how to surf, you know, and I'm looking for my next thing um, to put take, take myself kind of out of my comfort zone. Um, and then I think like, look, I think the third thing I'm about quitting to me, that, that is about like, it's why people, for example, often stay in failed relationships, right. Mm -hmm. Or friendships or marriages or whatever, because it's like, you don't want to be a failure. You don't want to quit. And part of that is because you want to be perfect and you don't want things to not work out for you. And so to me, taking stock Right. Of where when when are you in that place? Yeah. I mean, it reminds me of some of the research that's come out recently that shows um, people gain satisfaction from things they're good at. Right. Yeah. So one of the biggest predictors of whether you like your job is whether you're actually good at your job. Um, but that often can mean you've uh, you know, you're not necessarily pushing yourself. You're not taking risks. You're not failing in a way that would make you unhappy. And I think a crucial challenge is to renorm around uh, how to make people happy with failure. Um, yeah. But, we, you know, we, we talk a lot about trying to create a, a fast-fail culture in an, in an innovation team. Yeah. But a bit of me gets slightly irritated by the whole discourse around failure because it feels like something that's become very mainstream and almost fetishized. Unless you have had two failed startups, no yeah. one even takes you seriously yeah. in Silicon Valley. But <laughs> failure is really bad. And, and <laughs> some people, uh, they don't recover from failure. And there is a, you know, it can be devastating in personal relationships for one's health, etc. And it sometimes feels like a narrative that's been written by slightly privileged, entitled people, rather than uh, people who've actually experienced real failure. Well, not even that, but the victors, right? Like the people who kind of made it through the other side. I don't know. I don't feel like I'm a victor in my failures. I, I feel like I still, I literally, from the time I was 12, thought I would be in elected office and I can't seem to make that happen. Like, so, but see, I think what you're saying is that I think because we haven't taught, we haven't been taught to recover from failure. So failure is only bad when you fail 
and then you never do anything again risky because that feeling that you felt was so devastating that you don't ever want to feel like that again. Mm-hmm. My thing is how do you actually um, – how do you basically unteach that at a young age? So I saw this in action yesterday with my girls. And they were making a robot. They're using Scratch to make a robot go around this obstacle course. And it was just really fascinating because the robot wasn't doing what it wanted to do. And she kept being like, all right, wait, give me a second. I'm going to come back and try again. I'm going to come back and try again. And so it took her 40 minutes, but she got the robot to do what she wanted to do. But in that moment, she learned how to fail. Mm-hmm. And it felt good, actually. Because it eventually led to a great outcome. Um, and and so I think that that's, to me, the lesson is like most of the time when things don't work out in life, it's normally for the right reason. Like the best thing that ever happened to girls in technology was Rush Misajani losing multiple elections. Seriously. Because I wouldn't have built this movement. I wouldn't have built this organization. I would be sitting in Congress right now yelling at Donald Trump. You know, so I, I, I think that like... Things sometimes happen for a reason. I think having that perspective is really powerful. Rish Misajani, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. Rishma, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our senior producer is Golda Arthur. Jelani Carter is our associate producer. And Jarrett Floyd is our engineer. Vox Media's executive producer for audio is Nishat Kerwa. And a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Catherine Long, Alex Bandea, Taryn Turner, and Ben Moskovitz. Please drop us a line and tell us who you'd like to hear on this show. We would love to hear from you. Email us at displaced at rescue.org or drop by at rescue.org backslash displaced. And subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and see you next week.